Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the name which is above every name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. We do that right now, this morning. And Father, we invite that your spirit will be our teacher, our guide, that he will instruct our hearts in truth. You will remove from us extraneous things that would uh, hinder us from understanding what you're saying. Lord, that our hearts will be an open book before you and that you will deal with those issues in our own lives that need your cleansing touch. Father, we acknowledge that in our flesh we can do no good thing, but through the Spirit of God who dwells within us, we are empowered to serve you and to be your channels of blessing to others around us. Lord, I pray that you will minister to every heart on, in this complex this morning, in every class and in the services, that your name will be exalted and lives will be transformed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn to the 19th chapter of the book of Judges, this is one of the chapters of the Bible which many people wonder why it is in the Bible. Because the story it tells is not a very nice story. In fact, it's a kind of a story that some would consider even to be X-rated, maybe, in some ways. We've looked at the first part of this chapter, and, and we've seen the story of a Levite who lives in the backcountry of Ephraim, the tribal area of Ephraim, and he had acquired a concubine. And the concubine had gone away and played the harlot, we're told, and then fled back to her home in Bethlehem. After four months, he decided, I really care for this woman, so I'm going to see if I can't get her to come back to me. And, and, and the implication was, forgive her of what she has done. And, and the scripture tells us that he wooed her to come back. So he went to Bethlehem, and he was delayed there, if you remember, by the father-in-law for several days. And then finally he decided he's got to leave, even though it was late in the afternoon of the day that he left. And so he did. And they began the journey. The Levite, his concubine, and their servant, and two donkeys. And, and you may remember that they were down here at Bethlehem and they were headed north up here into the hill country. Here's the tribal area of Ephraim, which is this region in here. And all we're told was that they came from the backwoods area of the hill country of Ephraim. So exactly where that would be, we don't know, but probably somewhere up in here. And so on that short day, uh, in which they had maybe three hours in which to journey before the sun went down, uh, they went from Bethlehem, they passed Jerusalem, which was known as Jebus in those days because it was still occupied by the Jebusites. Uh, David would later, of course, conquer it and make it his capital. They went north of Jerusalem, uh, about two, three miles to the city of Gibeah. And that's where we are as we read this account uh, this morning. We're in the little town of Gibeah. We're looking at a, um, a situation which helps us to understand how decayed Israel had been, become during the era of the judges. When every man did that was right in his own, si uh, own eyes and allowed, therefore, the spirit of evil to begin to permeate their hearts and to deviate from the truth which they had known in the days of Moses and of Joshua. So if we read beginning at verse 22, while they were making merry, behold, the men of the city, this is of Gibeah, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding on the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may have relations with him. 
Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until the morning, then let her go at the approach of dawn. As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. Not a terribly inspiring passage as we um, read it uh, just out of the blue. You remember they came into the city of Gibeah, which was a small town, simply to get out of the countryside at night. There was anarchy in the land, and to try to camp out in the dark at night would have, of course, invited trouble, thievery at the very minimum. And so they wanted to be, be behind the walls uh, of a city and where the gates would be shut at night. And when, when they could find no place to stay, they were going to stay in the open square. And the man felt it would be okay because he had enough food for himself and his, and his concubine and his animals and so forth. But this man who was the last to come into the city before the gates were shut was also from Ephraim, although he was living in Gibeah of Benjamin at the time. And he told them this is not a safe thing to do, to stay out in the, uh, in the square of the city at night because he knew uh, that there was a significant element in the population of Gibeah that would ravage them. And so he managed to convince them to come into his house. And the last part of uh, the previous passage in verse 21, we read that he took them into his house and gave the donkeys fodder and washed their feet and they ate and drank. And so they were being uh, given hospitality in the home of this man and then came the nighttime and things began to change. Here we have in this passage probably one of the most horrifying accounts of the whole Old Testament. What makes it, of course, more ghastly is that this city is not Sodom. This is not Gomorrah. This is not Babylon. This is Gibeah of Benjamin. This is an Israelite city. Uh, this is a city who, which is indwelled by the descendants of the youngest son of Jacob, of the second son of Rachel, of, of, of Joseph's younger brother the one who was sort of cared for and nurtured in the old age of Jacob. These are his descendants. According to modern archaeology, the, the site of Gibeah, which is on a hill, in fact, the word Gibeah means hill, was not occupied before this time. It was not a city that was captured from pagans and then occupied by the Benjaminites, but the Benjaminites built the city on the hill, so it had not been occupied, uh, an occupied site before. So the Benjamites could not blame previous inhabitants from leaving behind the spirit of evil which sort of jumped into them when they, when they occupied the city. They, they're trumping this up all on their own. Well, of course, great help from the evil world, obviously, in this. The city is very defensible, and I think I mentioned to you last time that uh, today you can very clearly see the uh, city of Gibeah. If you're on the main highway going north out of Jerusalem, on your right you will see this hill very clearly because there's a big palace sitting on the top of it. It's the palace that King Hussein began to construct uh, before the 1967 war, in which, of course, Israel took over Jerusalem, the rest of Jerusalem, and the whole West Bank, and as a result, uh, the hill was no longer in his kingdom, so he didn't ever finish the palace, but there's this unfinished palace sitting right smack on the very top of the hill on, on the site where Gibeah stood at the time 
we're talking of it. This passage emphasizes, I think, a very important truth, and that is to be physically descended from the godly patriarch Abraham did not mean that one was spiritually descended from the great patriarch Abraham. And the scripture makes a point of this in several places. Let me just mention a couple of passages. The eighth chapter of the Gospel of John. In John 8, beginning at verse 31, we read these words of Jesus. Jesus, therefore, was saying to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We're Abraham's offspring, and has never, have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You shall become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin, and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my words, word has no place in you. I speak these things which I have seen with my father. Therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your father. And the implication is your father is not Abraham here. They answered and said to him, and you'll notice they caught the implication, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. And then, it's very interesting in this passage, you'll notice that they got it wrong from the very beginning when they said in verse 33, we're Abraham's offspring, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. Well, at the very moment they were talking, they were under the heel of Rome, uh, you know, and they'd been under that, before that being under the heel of the Greeks, and then before that under the Persians. I mean, there's a long list of people they'd been under. Very nearsighted, obviously. And then in Galatians, Paul makes a similar point. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Even so Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. The point, of course, that Jesus and Paul were making was that the true children of Abraham are those who are children of Abraham by faith. You and I are the descendants of Abraham by faith, even if we have absolutely no genetic direct connection to Abraham. We are his descendants in faith. And these Benjaminites, although they were the descendants of one of the sons of Jacob, who was, of course, the grandson of Abraham, they were not children of Abraham in faith. And we see that very clearly in, in the events that transpire here in this passage. The word spread very quickly through the town, through the homosexual community of the town, which seems to have been a fairly large element in the community, that a stranger had come into the town and was lodged at the Ephraimite's house under the cover of darkness. I think that's very significant. These men made their move. Now, they are called in the Hebrew the sons of Belial. 
Belial means sons, or sons of Belial means sons of worthlessness. Later on, the Jews will take that very word and make it a synonym for Satan. Later on, to call someone the son of Belial was to call him the son of the devil. And it's very applicable here. In moral character, we discover that these men are absolutely identical to the people of Sodom who were not in any way related at all to Abraham or to any of God's people. In fact, I, let's, I'd like to go back and read from the 19th chapter of Genesis because the parallel between that chapter and this chapter is so close that there are some commentators who say that if it weren't for the historical context and the events that transpire in the book of Judges, they would say that somebody just made this story up to parallel the Sodom count. But that, of course, is not true. In 19th chapter of Genesis, now, now as we read through this, notice, I mean, it's almost an exact parallel of what happens. Except, of course, we have angels involved in in the 19th chapter of Genesis and a Levite and his concubine and servant in, in this other passage. Now, the first verse. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, however, no, but we shall send the night, spend the night in the square, exactly what the Levite had said. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered into his house. <clears throat> and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread. And they ate, and he certainly washed their feet, everything the Ephraimite did. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called out to Lot, saying, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we, we may have relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do not do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under my roof for shelter. This is an exact parallel. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one man came as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Lot was an alien in Sodom, and the Ephraimite was, a, was an alien in Gibeah. Lot offered his two daughters. This man offers his daughter and the Levite's concubine. I mean, it's, I mean, it's like... Uh, the guy who, uh, the man who was inspired to write Judges, is like he took the story out of Genesis and just changed the names. I, I think the tragedy, of course, of it is, as I emphasized earlier, we're not talking about a Sodom here. We're not talking about a city that was steeped in paganism. We're talking about a city of God, uh, of God's people. We're talking about a city not far from where the uh, tabernacle was set up. The tabernacle was sh uh, set up here at Shiloh, and Gibeah is not far away. A and yet, obviously, the word of the Lord was not reaching the hearts of these people. So just, we, we have here the same kind of story that we have that occurred a half, more than half a millennium before in Sodom. The men of Gibeah wanted the Levite to come out. 
that they might have sexual relations with him. He was a stranger, somebody new, and they wanted to practice their sexual perversions on this man. Obviously, it wasn't a consensual relationship, right? They were demanding that he come out, that he be used. Such vile inhumanity, I think, can only be explained by going back again to that wonderful explanatory first chapter of Romans. Just read a few of the verses there, beginning at verse 24, Romans 1, 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to, degra to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. There are many in our society today, as you and I well know, who accept, beyond that even advocate, homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle, an alternative lifestyle. The so-called gays have convinced many that they are simply expressing a natural sexual preference. It just doesn't happen to be the dominant one. It's, it's a, you know, a recessive one, but nevertheless, it's natural, they argue. And they argue that it has absolutely nothing to do with morality, as long as, they you know, as it takes place within the context of love. You are aware, I trust, that there are churches in America which are where the membership is largely composed of practicing homosexuals. In those churches, all scriptures, such as this one and the numerous other scriptures in both Old and New Testament, are ignored, denied, or redefined or reinterpreted to say something different from what they actually say. Now, they would deny this, of course, but homosexual priests, and we heard one on television the other night on the Larry King uh, show, a Roman Catholic priest, and he was very adamant about his homosexuality and that it was good. And pastors, such as the recently defrocked United Methodist pastor who advocates it, homosexual marriage, they have remade God in their own image. They've taken the God of the Bible and made him into the image that they have preferred for him. They have, quote, modernized him. They have stripped God of, of, of his Victorianness, you might say. And his emphasis upon uh, narrow moral interpretations. How does, however, the immortal, eternal, immutable, transcendent, and eminent God view all this? What are his actual words concerning sin in general, not just this sin? Well, of course, the passage that is so often quoted I suppose because it's so blunt, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, makes it really quite clear. And the only way to not see it as clear is to strip the passage of what it really says. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that unrighteous, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. Now, Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. Corinth at that time was a huge metropolitan area. It was a city whose population was close to that of Rome in size. Some estimate as many as 750,000 people lived in metropolitan Corinth at that time. And when we back, you may not remember, if you weren't here, of course you wouldn't remember, but a year ago last summer, we, we did, uh, or was it two summers ago? I think it was two summers ago. We, we did a, a few weeks on, on the world of the book of Acts having to do with Paul's missionary journeys and so forth. And I pointed out the fact that Corinth is located right on the narrow isthmus of Corinth, where you only have four miles of land that separate the isthmus of Corinth from the Aegean Sea. And that was a major trade area. And, and sailors came in and out there all the time. And they always were looking forward to going to Corinth because it was a city where they could really, uh, you know, let their hair down and, and do everything they always wanted to do because it, of course, it, its chief goddess was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And there was all kinds of ritual prostitution. It was a very, very immoral city. And so when Paul says, and such were some of you, he is talking, of course, directly to the people at Corinth who were saved out of this corruption. And you'll notice that the list does not just say homosexuals. It just puts that right in the midst of all of these other things. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, anybody who practices this as a lifestyle. Bill? No, <clears throat> Friday night, there's a um, 2020, one of the politicians was, was um, asked about this and his views, and he conceded that it was a sin, his views, implying it. Um, but again, putting it in the list with everything else, we and if we're angry, it's a sin. Um, and there is that list there, but wouldn't we say that it is a little more because some people are living in sin? Oh, sure. I mean, if, if I get unrighteously angry, I'm committing sin, but I probably don't go around unrighteously angry all the time, is I suppose what you're saying. Whereas a homosexual lifestyle or an adulterous lifestyle or a fornicating lifestyle is, is what you do all the time. I mean, it's the way you're living. Yeah. Well, sure. I, you know, I, I don't think that every sin can be put as equal to every other sin. But that when you look at this list of things that you know, swindlers, uh, drunkards, revilers, a lifestyle in which this is what characterizes your nature and the way you are in life, then I suppose you're equally condemned no matter what the actual physical practice might be. We all sin and come short of the glory of God. We all fail. Uh, in our walk with the Lord. But hopefully, uh, as Paul is saying here, such were some of you, but you've been washed, you were sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. I think it is abundantly evident from not only this passage, but many passages of Scripture, that those who have sincerely repented and sincerely come to faith, that that person is washed of, of his sin. That person is delivered from this uh, practice. It may not happen overnight, but sometimes it does. In some cases, it's a long process, but the delivery is beginning to happen. 
but it can only be, of course, fully carried out as the word continues to wash and as people pray and support one another in this. And the active, desired practice of this, quote, alternate, alternative lifestyle or any of the others on this non-comprehensive list, of course, by the way, the things listed in in uh, this particular passage in 1 Corinthians are not all the things that keep us out of the kingdom of God. That, that these things are no longer a part of, of the way we live. And of course the scripture and the church does not condemn someone for a condition called homosexuality or a condition called adultery or a condition called a tendency to lie, but for the constant practice of it. Because in, in the flesh of every one of us here is, is the capability of almost any kind of a sin. But, but we're delivered by the Lord and, and we trust him for the strength to live beyond that. I think what is appalling to many of us in this passage, more even maybe than this overt expression of, of perversion, is that we find this Ephraimite who is hosting the Levite trying to first persuade the sons of Belial to desist from their evil purpose. But they are, of course, not concerned over the fact that he legitimately must protect the traveler. That's the, 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 the rule of hospitality. He must protect the traveler. They're not concerned about giving a bad name to the city of Gibeah. They're just intent on one thing. So what does he do? He offers his virgin daughter and he offers the concubine of the Levite. Here, have them and do with them whatever you want. Just as Lot said concerning his two daughters. But, of course, these men were not satisfied because they burned in their desire for homosexual expression. I think as we read this passage, I, I know it happened to me and I'm sure it does to you too. I, I was incredulous that this Ephraimite was willing to sacrifice his daughter, his virgin daughter, to be ravaged by these human beasts who are howling outside of the doorway like a pack of wolves. And also, of course, to offer the Ephraimites concubine. And, and I thought, where is this man's fatherly love? Where is chivalry? Where is gallantry? Where is the head of the family standing to defend the family? How could he possibly even think the thought, let alone make the offer? Knowing that if he puts his daughter out there, these men are going to do terrible things. Well, to, to answer the question, I, I think it has to be noted the strength of the code of hospitality in those days and in that place. It required the host to give everything in defense of the one that he is harboring in his house, even his own life. That was the rule of hospitality. You would give your life to defend the person you were sheltering under your roof. That's why they say, that's why Lot said, this, these men have come under the shelter of my roof. The implication was, I am their protector. How can you do this? In addition, there was, and tragically still is, the belief in most Near Eastern societies that women are of lesser value than men. Hence, to sacrifice his daughter and the Levite's concubine in order to save the Levite from being ravaged and possibly killed by this crowd was seen by that society as moral and right. I am not saying that that's what the Bible says should be. I'm simply saying that was the culture 
of the day. And of course, you and I, I think, are aware pretty much of the Near Eastern culture today, particularly in the Islamic world. And you know that in that world, women are still treated much inferior to men. Well, the vile men of Gibeah still clamored for the traveler. They were not satisfied with the offer. They didn't take up the offer. So they were pounding on the door. And so finally, to keep the, the crowd from breaking into the room and, and causing destruction, the Levite himself grabbed his concubine, opened the door and shoved her out and slammed the door and bolted it behind her. Gallant man that he was. Because they were thwarted from fulfilling their perversion, they poured out their frustration on this poor woman. I don't think we want to imagine what happened to her that night because she was totally abandoned by her only protector. The only one who could have given himself for her gave her for himself. The opposite of Christ. Christ gave himself for the church. He didn't shove the church out there and say, hey, you know, you go get bloody. I don't want to get hurt. Just the opposite, exact opposite of what the scripture teaches concerning Christ and the church. From this passage, we discover that she was so mistreated that she died. Now, we cannot excuse the Levite. We cannot excuse the Ephraimite in any way whatsoever. But, I think we have to acknowledge that the concubine was at least in a small part the victim of her own folly. Why was she in Gibeah? Because she had played the harlot against her Levite husband and had run away. And he'd gone, gotten to, gone to get her and bring her back and they happened to be in Gibeah on that return trip. Had she been faithful to her husband, she would never have been in Gibeah at that time to experience this tragedy. That does not excuse the Ephraimite, it doesn't excuse the Levite, it doesn't excuse the sons of Belial, but it helps us to understand the law of sowing and reaping. Verse 27 of Judges 19. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, he, then behold, his concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up and let's go. But there was no answer. And he placed her on the donkey, and the man arose and went to his house. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And it came about that all who saw it said, Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, speak up. I hope for none of you this is the first time to read this passage. It's shocking. What you see here is callousness, callousness on the part of this Levite who had just been in Bethlehem uh, the day before wooing this girl to come back with him, wined and dined by the father-in-law. I'm sure the father-in-law had no idea what would happen to his daughter or what kind of a man this Levite really was. He comes out of the house the following morning and incidentally sees her lying on the doorstep did he think that she had had such a lovely night that she didn't want to come in or just chose to sleep on the doorstep? Certainly she was in tatters, if not naked, obviously battered and bruised and bleeding. And he walks by her and he says, get up, let's go. Love, compassion, none, none. What was this wooing he had done for her in Bethlehem? Empty words, obviously. He had no real concern for this woman. 
and no thankfulness even, she had saved his hide. You would think there'd be a little thankfulness there. But she didn't respond. He, of course, discovered she was dead. So he tied her on his donkey, and all the way home he brooded about how he was going to get even with the men of Gibeah. How will I get even with the men of Gibeah? Was he wanting to get even with them because they had destroyed someone he loved, or was he wanting to get even with them because they had dared to threaten his life and to destroy a piece of his property? Well, when he got home, he came up with an idea that was as radical as it was gross. And as you see, he twelved her, and he sent a piece to the twelve tribes, including Benjamin. Obviously, there's no postal service in those days, so he had to hire messengers or something to, to do this grisly deed. And we read in verse 30 that it shocked the nation of Israel. Shocked them so much that they said, nothing like this has ever happened in Israel since we left Egypt. They've been, they've seen a lot of tragedy, a lot of horror, a lot of war, a lot of vileness, but nothing this, this bad had ever happened in Israel up to this moment since the time they had left Egypt. Well, this particular event is going to trigger a civil war in Israel. And it's nearly going to obliterate an entire tribe out of Israel. Only because of compassion at the last moment, a little bit of wisdom, was the tribe of Benjamin kept from being totally wiped off the map. God, of course, preserved the tribe, but the tragedy, the far-reaching vileness of this one event infected the whole nation of Israel and caused massive repercussions. That which is done in secret will one day be made light. Well, we'll have to finish it next week.